Hey everyone, uh, thanks for joining. Today I am talking with Ilan Mania. Ilan is a scholar at the University of Zurich. She was originally from Yemen, now she's um, she's living in Zurich, as I said, in Switzerland. She's also a Swiss citizen, and she's got her most recent book, uh, English translation is Islamism Mainstreamed. It unfortunately is only out in German. And also she just recently run, uh, written an article titled uh, ISIS Inside of Us, um, which is I found really interesting. Uh, hi, Ilan, thank you very much for joining. Thank you. Thank you for this invitation. Um, if, you, if you allow me, basically, as I said, the article is actually was written in 2014, you know, and based on that article, I wrote that book, uh, Islamism Mainstreamed. And the, 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 the core of the issue is basically um, uh, time to face the ISIS inside of us. That was the, the title uh, of that article. It came at the height of the ISIS uh, um, uh, development, uh, control of certain areas in Iraq and Syria, and we saw the atrocities they committed there in the name of the religion. So from that perspective, um, the, the, we are ISIS as a title. Actually, it was a title of an article written by the former Kuwaiti Minister of Information. His name is Saad ibn Tafla al-Ajmi. And he published an article in a Qatari newspaper on the 7th of August 2014. And he simply said, um, he reminded us, actually, that ISIS, while condemned by the majority of Muslims, is a product of an Islamic religious discourse that dominated our public sphere in the last decades. And it became a mainstream discourse. Um, and if I may quote him, he said, ISIS didn't come from another planet. It's not a product of the infidel West, bygone Orient. The truth that we cannot deny is ISIS learned from our schools, prayed in our mosques, listened to our media and our religious platforms, read from our books and references and followed fatwas that is religious edicts we produce. He was basically reminding us of a certain strategy that was done by many Arab states in terms of like allying themselves with um, Islamist groups, uh, either fundamentalist groups or political Islam. Political Islam, by the way, you know, it's an ideology, but it is based on a fundamentalist reading of Islam. And through that cooperation, on the one hand, the political elites will get legitimacy uh, religiously sanctioned from these groups, but on the other hand, these groups will were allowed to mainstream their take on Islam um, in all of these areas and all of these fields. Uh, change the curriculums in the school, in the media, and in the mosques. And he was basically telling us that the fact that if we look, and so it's like actually, it's like I, I also mentioned in that article, look closely and you will see what ISIS did. They it didn't invent it, didn't come out of the blue. It's something that we learn also in our schools, in religious classes. 
uh, that basically uh, there's a certain period of the life of Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, where um, um, during um, the wars that he conducted, um, uh, slaves were taken. These are things that we learn at school. Um, we learn also in school that within um, uh, uh, that um, uh, uh, Christians and Jews are not uh, equal citizens. You know, that we learn things in religious classes that don't tell us anything about equal citizenship. About the fact that uh, um, people are equal before the law, regardless of religion, of gender, or of political, uh, political, or 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 uh, uh, of any religious belief, that a person has a right to his or her ideas, regardless uh, of these uh, ideas or sexual orientation. We never learned that in schools, and and from that perspective. When he wrote that article, that is a former information minister, Kuwaiti, was basically reminding us, uh, don't, don't pretend uh, that we are basically surprised. Don't be surprised. Why are you telling me you're surprised? You know that this is something that we learned specifically in the Arabian Peninsula. And when we talk about Egypt specifically also, we see it also in the curriculums uh, taught by Al-Azhar uh, Institute. So all of that reminds us that in order for us to tackle this violent jihadi Islamist groups, we also to tackle the non-violent, mainstream, not only in, 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 in Arab and Islamic countries because of the politics of survival of some political elites, but also within our Western uh, societies in certain uh, communities where you see this transnational Islamist movements at work in control of certain mosques, of Quran schools, um, and of um, um, uh, of yeah, of of uh, they have certain kind of control that reflect on the way um, a segment of um, a segment, and I'm emphasizing a segment of Muslim communities um, perceive the world around them. Yeah, I wanted to just touch on a couple of things like that. I hadn't read the, the article by the, I'm not gonna be able to pronounce that person's name because I just won't be able to do it. But there was also in 2015, Al-Hazar had put out a statement and there was two statements. One was from Al-Azhar, one was from a scholar, I think, who had disassociated himself from Al-Azhar at the time. And it was right after the Jordanian pilot had been burned. And Al-Azhar said, you know, while <clears throat> ISIS might be terrorists, we cannot condemn them for being un-Islamic. And then I, 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 I'm trying to remember the name of the scholar who did it. It was Omar or something or other. And he mentioned that, you know, Al-Azhar cannot denounce ISIS because ISIS is a product of Al-Azhar. And it's similar to what you were saying there. It's what was taught and then touching on in, in the West. Uh, and again, this is from family only. So, you know, small sample size here, but I'm assuming it's similar. A lot of places I was at my uncle's place um, a few years back and I believe it was around, um, it was the E right after the end of uh, Ramadan. Right. And so there's a few of us over there. So my uncle and, you know, extended family and a few other people were talking and they were talking about the local mosque near where they lived. Uh, it's a southern uh, it's a suburb south of Montreal. 
and they were talking about, oh, we really liked the imam that was there you know, last Friday. He, just, he was really good. He gave a good khutbah. Wish he would speak more. The other imams are too political. It gets too out of hand. And I just asked them, I said, why don't you say something? And these are men in their late 60s, early 70s, who said, well, we don't, we're afraid of being shunned. We're afraid of being kicked out of their community. And it's like, you're, you know, grown men. You've built lives. You've got families. You've got a support group outside the mosque. You all agree. Don't you think other people agree? But they are too afraid because of what the community might think. And I don't know if you notice that in Switzerland um, or Europe in general, where there might be people who want to speak out, but they're afraid of, you know, ostracization from their community. And it, it like that's something that I think has to be fought, and people have to get over that. Switzerland is a different case because uh, in Switzerland you see actually the the majority, although it's starting to change in some parts of, uh, of Muslim communities. You have a very diverse group. Uh, majority of them are coming from uh, former Balkan countries uh, or Kosovo and Albania. And um, uh, very often, it's just like you would say, 80% um, uh, of them, of the 400,000 Muslims uh, living in Switzerland, um, the statistics show that they do not really practice their religion. But you have the, the 20% and among them 12% who regularly go to mosques. And within that uh, religious group, you have a certain fundamentalist. Uh, please notice, I'm not saying all the 20% or 12% who are religious are fundamentalists. I'm saying there's a segment among them, you know. And, and there, in certain communities, one realizes there that there is a fear, yes. It's just like one is afraid of, uh, um, you're afraid of, of speaking out, you know, um, of, of criticizing. And um, I believe there's a, a silent uh, uh, majority uh, in several areas, in several countries, who are afraid to speak um, about such issues for fear of being uh, stigmatized, defamed. And you know that fundamentalists or political or Islamists, they seem to be very, they're, they're very good at being loud, at, at being uh, intimidating, uh, at, at using guilt feelings. Um, but at the same time, it's just, uh, and the, uh, lately, I don't know if, you, if you've noticed that, but I see right now a certain kind of tendency in many countries, uh, European and, and North American countries, where you have certain numbers of people who are not afraid of speaking, um, uh, to ex of expressing their opinions. Uh, you have also a tendency of many also, and I see this tendency also in Switzerland, where um, uh, young men and women don't seem to um, to be interested in religion. Some of them are more um, uh, likely to be atheists, you know. So you see different kind of like a complicated picture, but you're right. Um, you have those who are um, disagreeing with the discourse taking place in fundamentalist mosques, and yet they're afraid to speak up their mind or to stand up and say, this is wrong. And we have to find a way 
um, to articulate our worries and make sure that uh, um, a hate discourse, uh, for God's sake, if you go to a mosque, you're supposed to hear a spiritual message, not to, to, to a place where it tells you hate the Jews or hate the, the Christians or hate everybody around you because everybody is against this religion. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, that whole thing, like, the, it's always someone else's fault. And it's, it's, you know, granted, it's not just Islam that does it. It's any one of these, anyone on any kind of extreme, you know, will want to find someone else to blame, right? It's, it's not our fault. It's the fault of X or it's the fault of Y. It's always blaming something else, never really wanting to own up to what they themselves have done to cause it. Um, but I wanted to just touch on something that you just talked about, like the younger people coming up who might be more atheistic. If you'd asked me, maybe they'd say 15 years ago or before, before 9-11, let's say, if you'd asked me, I would have said that there would have been better chances of places like Indonesia and Malaysia, South Asia, basically, and even parts of Africa to be, become less Islamic and the Middle East be the last stronghold. But now I'm seeing, okay, you know, what's happening in Iran right now. Uh, you know, there was a Pew, a Pew poll, no, it was a Gallup uh, poll that came out in 2013, I believe. At, you know, that said 19% of Saudis were questioning, 5% were outright atheist. You know, there, there was polls like this. I actually have more hope for the Middle East and North Africa than I do for a place like Pakistan because I see the population in those countries wanting some sort of change. Whereas I, I look at Pakistan and I just, I mean, I go back to this one example a lot, <clears throat> which was at the end of 2017, there was a, um, or was it, sorry, the end of 2017 or 2016, there was a clerical error that took out one line from the oath of office for politicians that said Muhammad was the last prophet. And that was one of the things I was keeping Ahmadis out of pro, uh, polit uh, politics in Pakistan, right? Now that got removed. The population went crazy at a perceived relaxation of their version of Sharia or whatever. And the population went nuts. And then when the politicians called the military in, the military at one point, I think even started defending the population. And they had to, you know, walk themselves back and say, no, no, we, we, this, we, we didn't mean it. We were going to reinstate that. So <clears throat> I'm just worried about a place like Pakistan or even Indonesia or any of these places where even if the government tries to relax it, have the population there being so brainwashed that they don't want to? Like, is that going to be something that's going to come back and bite, you know, Saudi and Iran, you know, for everything they funded now? If they try to lessen it, is that something that's going to come back to haunt them? It will be, uh, it's haunting them. And if you look at the strategy of Pakistan for the last uh, uh, four decades, um, if not, yeah, four decades. Uh, it was uh, simply building, with the help of Saudi Arabia, madrasas, um, uh, brainstorming, uh, uh, like, um, uh, um, brainwashing uh, children uh, through these madrasas. It's um, just put it this way: if you look at the the strategy of. Um, uh, the state of Pakistan, regardless of who was in government, uh, specifically starting from, from, from the 70s, 
uh, you will see deliberate measures to mainstream a certain form of fundamentalist Islam, specifically the Diubandi Islam, the South Asia version of it. And together with Saudi Arabia, money was really um, uh, flooding the country in order to build madrasas and to teach children that version of Islam. You know, and through that, one realizes basically that things changed. Um, uh, um, the way people um, um, consider issues of, uh, um, for instance, uh, how to treat a person who belongs to uh, the Ahmadiyya denomination. Uh, there was a period when, when they were basically uh, the Pakistanis before the creation of Pakistan. They were tolerant. Uh, accepting each other, not anymore after um, the mainstreaming of this uh, form uh, uh, of uh, Islam. And one realizes basically that this fundamentalism led to a situation where even the, 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 the constitution, the constitution um, uh, was changed to accommodate uh, these views. Uh, the, uh, a member of the Ahmadiyya uh, is not allowed by law, by constitution, to call himself or herself a Muslim. If he or she does that, or if he or she calls their mosque a mosque, they will be sentenced to five years uh, in prison. And you realize when you look at all of this, it's very essential to look at the role of the state and the structure that it builds, um, and how that reflects on society uh, over uh, um, a certain period. Uh, and from that perspective, yes, um, I see in, in Pakistan a situation where right now, even if they tried, um, you've seen uh, when you had um, brave governors trying to change the law, specifically the blasphemy law, um, they, they end up assassinated by their own guards. Yeah, and the so, assassins get praised. Exactly, <laughs> and and one sees that one sees that is something. Um, it's it's like the ghosts you unleash; they come back to to haunt you, and that's what happened in Pakistan. And the problem is basically usually the human being in these societies, whether minorities, whether uh, citizens of different opinions, people of different sexual orientation, people of different um, belief, who just basically don't want to believe, uh, they end up like uh, um, uh, killed, suffering because of such um, mainstreaming of this forms of Islamism, fundamentalism, or political Islam. Yeah. Actually, speaking on that, that's something I, I'm trying to change as well about why, how I discuss certain things. I used to use the term Arabization. And probably over the last year, I've, I'm like, I kind of regret when I've used that. And, and it's, it, okay, I'm not denying the fact that, you know, Qatar, Kuwait, um, Yemen, before what's going on there now, to some extent, obviously Saudi, they were pushing things out, and yes, they are Arab states. But I think just to call it Arabization takes away from the fact that it wasn't really Arabization because the first people to lose their culture 1,400 years ago were Arabs, and they lost their culture to the Quraysh tribe, right? And so, I mean, jokingly, I said we should call it the Quraishization of the world. 
you know, not, not, not Arabization, just because it was the Quraysh tribe that imposed their culture and their, you know, they were the first Muslims, I guess, and they, they imposed it on the rest of the Arabs. And, you know, like I, I really started to dislike that term. Oh, but I, I just see a, a certain role of certain Arab states in mainstreaming this form of Islamism. But I cannot ignore the fact that Pakistan has played a very important role as well in terms of Al-Jamal Islamiyah, for instance, coming from Pakistan, Diobandi coming from Islam, and they are very much um, uh, important player uh, players in in uh, uh, in South Asian communities in, in Western democracies, including Britain, you know. So from that perspective, while I see the important role of Arab countries in uh, specifically Gulf countries, Yemen didn't, never had the money for that, you know. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait is very important in, in exporting Salafi Islam because of the transnational kind of like uh, infrastructure that they have and the money they can basically uh, pump in it, and I'm not talking about the state here in Kuwait, I'm talking about non-governmental organization and very rich individuals. All of that played a role in, 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 uh, in building the infrastructure to spread this type of um, uh, political ideology and the fundamentalist reading of religion that is legitimizing it. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, like, like I said, it was just, maybe I'm just being too much of a stickler. It was just, I'm like, okay, you're blaming all of the Arabs. I know it's Arab countries doing it. I know that there's, but I think we have to also, you know, it was, Camille, I'll go at it from a different tact. I was, a friend of mine uh, started an organization called Ideas Beyond Borders. And uh, they basically translate books on science and philosophy and bring them to the, uh, into Arabic and they post them online. And they're free for anyone to to download. And so they've recently done Stephen Pinker's book, Enlightenment Now. Uh, they've done a couple of Sam Harris's books. Uh, I think they also just did the one that Sam Harris did with the Majin Nawaz, uh, Islam and the Future of Tolerance. And they're also translating Wikipedia articles. Now, again, it's a friend of mine. and I could, It's very easy for me to say, oh, you should translate this or you should put that online. It's a lot harder for him to do, right? Uh, but I would say to him, why not try to bring back versions or why not try to bring back the, 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 the texts of the writers from the golden age of Islam that are banned in the Middle East? You know, you have people like um, oh, Al-Farabi or Ibn Khaldun, um, you know, Averroes and Avicenna are, I guess, the two of the more famous ones who talked about secularism, who talked about, you know, open, you know, more open societies, it might have been a little bit harsher than what we have now, but at least they were bringing these ideas to bear. Whereas, I mean, all you're really taught now is, is you know, from what I can understand, is like people like Al-Azali or Ibn Hasham, right? You're not taught the free thinkers from those societies. I mean, what I was trying to say to him was, why don't you bring back to these, to these people and say, look, you're denied your own history. You're denied your own thought. Like this, you know, don't think of it as Western secularism. This is thought that's been around forever. And it was, you know, Part of the reason it got into Europe was because Muslim scholars were talking about it. And I, and I, and I actually encourage such approach as well. Um, uh, I, think, I think it has to be like open to, to both, uh, to, the, to the future, to the present, and to the uh, past. 
know, and that means just, uh, uh, the, um, one thing that I always insist on, I'm not cut, cutting my heritage. I'm not going to ignore my heritage. There are sides of that heritage that I respect and I think is worth also um, looking at, you know. So, so you, you mentioned some of them, Aviros, Ibn Rushdie, you know. You, you mentioned some names that basically you can look at them and you realize, hey, they made such contrib contributions, we can also uh, look at their contribution. And also in Sufi tradition, for instance, Ibn Arabi, you know. Mm -hmm. But that said, or a Rumi, that said, um, uh, uh, I also want to look to the future. And, and that means while I do not um, uh, ignore my heritage, I insist at the same time that we have the ability to think for ourselves and to come up with new ideas that are reflective of our current time. There are things, there are limits to how far you could look at the past and find solution for the present or the future. So from that perspective, both the past, the present, and the future. My oh, no, no, I, okay, I'm not going to deny that. Like, obviously, you need new people coming out and thinking. Um, and, okay, you know, most famous I can think of is Raif Badawi. That's what he was doing, right? He was coming out and he was bringing up in new thought. And, yes, you can go back. You can go back to a certain point and say, okay, this is where it came from. And I'm not saying that just put that out and, okay, this is all you really need to know. But maybe to... Because the term secularism in the, in the Middle East is, is it's poison. I mean, because of people like Mubarak and you know the uh, Assad and Gaddafi and you know even you know, like Saddam Hussein, you've got like a even the Shah. I mean, like you know Mossadegh being overthrown by the British and the U.S. and then the Shah being you know put in power. Like so, secularism does have a tainted view in the Middle East, from what I can see. So I'm just saying, if you can go back and say that, show them, like, it's not Western values. It's not, you know. It's a universal one. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> these are values that have been around for a long time. And, you know, we're just asking everyone to, you know, at least that's what I am. Let's just treat everyone decently. We can have disagreements. We can talk about them. But just because, you know, I'm Sunni and someone's Shia, we have to hate each other. Or I, was, I shouldn't say I am Sunni. I, I stopped believing. Like I'm, I was raised Sunni, and someone's Shia. Like we have to hate each other because of that. Like, no. I mean, I, it's it, it's gotten ridiculous. I, you know, even like speaking to some of my friends, uh, uh, Ali Rizvi. I don't, I don't know if you know him um, or know. Yeah, you know, we were speaking to him the other day, and it was, you know, they had to practice in secret in Saudi when his family was there. You know, if any of the, you know, like, especially like during Ashura or Moram and all that, they had to do anything they were doing secreted inside people's houses and there was always someone as a lookout making sure that the religious police weren't coming to crack down on Shias practicing Islam, right? And it, I'm like, how can you say something is universal when you are f actively going out and stopping anyone from practicing any form of whatever you're saying is universal? I mean, I just, the, the contradiction is just, there's too many contradictions like that. We have to insist that universal human rights are universal, you know, regardless of religion. Because uh, from, if we look at the example that you just mentioned, it's, uh, some countries will tell you, oh, this is our culture, 
a religious kind of like teaching. You cannot impose uh, your universal human rights on us, and they do, and and they basically use um, concept of like cultural relativism, uh, cultural relativism, and uh, rights to um, a freedom, kind of like uh, exercising your cultural um, tradition. But but that's actually just. Um, these are simple lies. What they're doing is that they're trying to justify grave violations of human rights in the name of religion. The fact that any person, it's like if in Saudi Arabia, that, um, uh, um, that, that there, there was a certain period, and I think it's still um, not free when it comes to those um, belonging to uh, minorities, uh, Shia Islam, they cannot exercise their religion openly without punishment. Uh, anyone who would like to exercise his religion uh, or her religion as a Christian, they cannot exercise that without being punished. If they basically, um, if someone decided to uh, express views uh, that are deemed uh, blasphemous, uh, that is uh, an option uh, from the perspective of the government. All of that, these are examples of violation of human rights, uh, full stop. It's like you can't tell me in the name of, uh, of culture, of Saudi sensitivity, we, 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 we will basically uh, say, okay, you can uh, uh, kill people in the name of your religion, you can uh, um, uh, torture people in the name of your religion. No, so I think I think the time for such cultural relativist arguments are over, and people are. I, I have the impression, at least, although I think in Canada it's a different issue. I have the impression that uh, many people are starting to recognize the the cruel and brutal type of. Uh, violations taking place in many countries in the name of religion, in the name of culture. And, and that should stop. Yeah, I, I, I hate that. It just, I mean, the, 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 I, I kind of tongue-in-cheek wrote, and I'm a horrible writer, uh, but I wrote this and I was just like, you know, they can't see the victims for the brown people. They, they oh, no, it's brown people, so we can't see anything bad about them. It doesn't matter that you know, Shias are being oppressed in Saudi Arabia. If you criticize that, you're criticizing brown people, so you're a horrible racist, and, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to speak. It's like, well, what about that minority? Yeah. What, about what, about, the, what about the people in general? Or in <laughs> Iran, what about the people who are, being, who are suffering? It just, uh, but like, um, I'm not really sure what's taking place in, in Canada, but I, I do believe that you have a certain kind of segment of society who are aware of the problems but are afraid also to speak up. Exactly like the person that you mentioned about that person in the mosque. I have also the, the, the same um, impression about some people in Canada who are not convinced of the type of... Um, uh, first of all, identity politics, but also the type of um, uh, uh, political correctness that um, gag people and stop them from criticizing legitimately um, horrible uh, violations of uh, uh, human rights. Oh, no. I, mean, I, I, I have friends who tell me this um, mainly because they know like, 
you know, I speak out about it and I'm, I'm open about it. I don't care. Um, and they're like, oh, you know, well, it's good you're talking about it because we can't because we're white. And th this came up right around um, like February 1st. They do the hijab day thing. And then there was the, the counter to it, the no hijab day. And so this was right around then. And they're like, oh, well, we can't really talk about it. I said, why not? Well, you know, we're not Muslim. I said, neither am I. I don't believe in it. And they're like, oh, but, you know, you were raised in it. It's, it I'm like, and I just said to them, I said, you know, the civil rights movement would not have happened if it was only, you know, blacks in America that were taking up that cause. You needed everyone to join your cause because you needed, the, you know, you needed the, the strength in numbers, right? And you needed people to see that this is a human rights issue. Same thing with the gay rights in the States and, you know, the, the, the feminist movement in the 60s and the 70s. All of these things wouldn't have happened if you excluded all other members of the population except for those who you thought were affected because it, it, it you don't have enough people to do that then and it's like you're limiting yourself to this um also I, I i think it's when you leave out rational discussion on any of these issues you're allowing space for the bad actors to come in because you know there's a lot of people i see and then they're like you know oh you're anti-islam i want to you know talk to you about it and then I look at what they say and it's like, well, no, you, you know, you're talking about kicking out all Muslims. You're talking about, you know, banning people. I'm like. It's far right groups that yeah. are basically um, um, are filling the space yeah. because of the anger and, and frustration. And unfortunately, um, and I say that also in my writing, like if we don't tackle the problems and the issues and if we don't discuss them, um, in a differentiated but in a frank and clear way, we actually pave the ground for the far right groups to take over. Yeah, and it's. I mean, I don't. I'm not ready to give this conversation up. I'm not ready to. <clears throat> excuse me. I'm not ready to give up any conversation. You know, it's if it's something I find egregious or something that I find wrong. You know, I want to be able to have the freedom to speak out about it. I don't care that I don't fit neatly in someone's worldview that okay i'm not you know part of group x and this is an issue that only that you know you know that affects group x so i can't say anything about it because i'm not of group x it's like it's silly i mean you know the any issue like, it, like for me it comes down to like what are your first principles if do you believe in open discourse do you believe in the rights of the individual do you believe in <clears throat> free speech and if you don't believe in any of those things, then fine, I understand where your worldview is from and why you want to stop the talk. But if you say you believe in all those things and I'm trying to bring light to issues, don't call me some sort of bigot because I'm not from that group. It, it, it drives me crazy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think we have a lot to do. <laughs> yeah, it's, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's why I kind of started doing this. I, you know, I, I just said, you know, okay, if I'm opposed to this or that, I want to stop talking about what I want to fight. Like, my, my main thing is freedom of expression. Like, you know, I, again, joking around the last couple of years, I said, okay, I'm done with left and right. I'm done with liberal and conservative. I'm an enlightenmentarian. I want to uphold and follow the values of the enlightenment. And I, mean, and I think that's what we need to kind of come down to is like, okay, what are the values you want to follow? Because if you ask, you know, okay, let's take the United States, there's 330 million people. You ask them what is left and right, you're going to get 330 million different definitions. Like nothing seems, to, we're losing language, we're losing 
terms that were important, that were necessary, we're not able to use them anymore. So I'm thinking like, okay, forget it. Let's let's just come up with something new. Let's, you know, this these terms, this terminology is not working. Let's come up with something else and define ourselves based on our values. And so I want to do like, I want to promote those values. I want to defend those values. I don't want to go out and attack, you know, people who won't let me take up spot to speak about Islam. I don't want to go and attack, um, you know, like I don't want to attack anyone. I just I I don't want to be on the attack. I want to say okay, this is these are my values. This is what I protect. This is what I defend. If you have a problem with that, come at me, and I'll defend myself. Um, yeah. And I think that's a, that's a, a, an important approach because it allows you to show what you stand for, and also the ways that you would like to defend what you stand for. And while this is the case, you can as well. Uh, express your views on issues that are very important, you know. And um, the way I, I, I usually do it is just that basically uh, I, I think research uh, is a way of looking at issues that allows us to, to search for answers, for possibilities, for solutions. Because at the end of the day, it's just like whatever we are all are doing, it's for this human being, for this individual, for humanity, I'll put it this way, for, for, for this humanity, because I know you think I'm crazy. I always tell my daughter, one day, we will be calling ourselves Earth people. <laughs> and people will think I'm crazy. But I believe, if you look, if you look at people on this Earth, you realize basically, at the end of the day, it's about about this humanity actually it's about this humanity and the good and, 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 and the well-being of this humanity and any form of extremism whether right or left whether religious or non-religious it really damages the goodness inside of us and and I really wish that we basically work for that for the goodness yeah I mean I like I think instead of saying okay I want to be against religion or I want to be against um, you know the, the, the far right or the, the extreme left or whatever I think a better way to look at it is okay these are all dogmatic ways of thinking let's find a way to let's give people the tools so they can get out of dogmatic thinking it doesn't matter what your cause is as soon as you get into any kind of dogmatic thinking like that you are going to go to the extreme and it's so I, I think it's it, it's maybe you know it's going to take a while, but maybe it is getting certain things back into school, like critical thinking. Like let's get critical thinking back into schools and not critical theory, right? Like I mean, there's huge difference between like critical race theory and critical thinking, right? Like let's let's focus on the critical thinking. Um, you know, I think there was something in the in the states recently. They were freaking out because fifth graders and sixth graders weren't learning how to balance a checkbook. I'm like, they're not supposed to. Fifth graders and sixth graders don't, shouldn't need to know how to balance a checkbook. They should need to know. Please. Yeah. No, but what are sixth, you know, fifth and sixth graders doing with a checkbook anyway? <laughs> no, but like, like things like that, it's just like, no, let's, let's I think we're, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I I have a, okay, at least for North America, I kind of have a, a weird hypothesis. I think, it was, I mean, it all came out of wanting to do good. 
so like if you go back to the civil rights thing in the, you know, the 60s. And, um, so they were like, okay, we want to end racism, which is laudable. And I agree with that. We should, we should not be racist in our views. We should, you know, look. But I think it just slow, like, you know, people talk about getting into the academy and things like that. But I think it, that that's where it happened. Where it's like, okay, so we should put a course in classes where, you know, in, in elementary school classes where, where kids will learn about how not to be racist. So then you have to have te people to teach those teachers how to teach that, right? And then it's, it's slowly, like these, these fields just kind of grew. And now you've got this monster that you kind of created in, inside the academy that's dictating how everything should be taught, which, I mean, I, I mean I, I, like I said, I think there's a lot of problems and I think there's a lot of things that need to be fixed. And, you know, I'm glad there's people like you talking about Islam and I'm glad that there's other people talking about what's going on in the academy and I'm glad that there's people, you know, I, I, I just want to see a lot more rational voices coming out because it, it, it is depressing sometimes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, anyway, I want to touch a little bit on your book. Uh, I read this, you know, and thank you very much. You sent me uh, an English an English draft, so I was able to read it because I can't read German. <laughs> but uh, I mean, you... <laughs> but you have an, at least I wrote it in English, yeah. so you can actually publish it in English. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I if if I could help you get that published, I would. I but that's another thing, like. You know, you'd mentioned that you were having a hard time getting it published in English. Like, why? Um, so far, I haven't found... That's my book. <laughs> okay. So far, it wasn't possible to find a publishing. Um, you see, it's easy to find publishing houses that would basically... That you could describe it as basically going on a certain line. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy. It's just like far right or, or it's easy to find that. I don't want that. I want it to be mainstream or liberal, you know, because it's a, because this book was written based on research and I'd like it to be published in a manner that actually reflects that way. And at the same time, unfortunately, in the United States, the liberal ones, they just Basically, there was, I got this message, we cannot touch it because of Trump. So, with all due respect, um, I understand the difficult situation because of the existence of Trump, because of his policies, but I found it a very strange uh, argument in terms of an issue that we all know we have a problem with and we can't find solution for if we looked at it in the manner, um, in a manner that actually, how do you say, deconstructed, mm -hmm. and at the same time looks at the um, structures that mainstream them. And okay, um, I thought maybe it's not the time for it right now, mm -hmm. and we will wait. It will come. It will come. But the good news is that it was really well received in the German-speaking parts, and I'm getting interesting invitations by certain authorities in different countries, you know, basically to, but at the same time, I was disappointed, I have to tell you, yeah. I was really disappointed. Okay, but that argument that because of Trump, we can't publish it, and it's just a key, you do realize the reason, okay, I should say the reason, but one of the reasons Trump got in was because of 
you not willing to talk about this subject and you've now vacated that space and left it to, you know, the demagogues of the world. And so if you're afraid of putting anything more out, you're just leaving that space, you know, there's a wider space for them now because there's nothing coming out to, to counter them. So, I mean, it's, it's, they're defeating themselves doing that. Like they, it, it, it's, it's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. And at the same time, uh, I, I felt like um, it's also um, uh, symbolic because it reflects a certain kind of atmosphere that is very tribalized in the United States. You know, and uh, to an extent that it it, it leads to um, um, it leads to um, um, uh, censorship, literally, uh, and censor censorship of um, um, in a country that actually was built on the idea of the freedom of expression, but. Um, um, I did my homework, I did my work, I wrote the book, it was published, you know, in German. I wish it would be published also in English. If it doesn't happen, it's also okay. It's also okay. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's like, honestly, I do wish it was because I enjoyed it quite a bit and it's quite informative. Uh, but I mean, in that book, you had actually also talked about growing up. Like, how did that kind of shape? you yourself now like the like that lifestyle growing up like what did like what was it from that that made you say okay well this is not for me so much it's like um, i i i wrote a chapter talking about what happened when i was 16 and only basically to show that on the one hand um how easy it can happen you know it, it can yeah. happen easily, and on the other hand as well <coughs> To show the dynamics, it's like the, the, the type of um, strategy used uh, by such uh, groups, uh, the type of doubts that you um, experience as an individual, as a youth. Uh, for my I, I came from a privileged uh, background. I was in a Muslim-majority country, and yet um, uh, I was in a situation where I didn't really know uh, where I belong to, you know, the daughter of a diplomat, the mother is from Egypt, the father of Yemen, and in Yemen, no one accepts you as a Yemeni, and in Egypt, no one accepts you as a, an Egyptian, and you end up like um, uh, with a group that tells you, hey, you don't really need to, to seek uh, uh, any further. All you have to be is one Muslim. The identity is Muslim. So so all of that has has, on the one hand, um, I was lucky because I was raised by in, a, in, a, in an atmosphere where my father, specifically my father, was a free thinker, I'll put it this way, very much um, shaped me by Al-Mu'tazila, uh, this uh, uh, heritage of those um, rational thinking uh, Muslim philosophers. Um, um, and, and, and that in a way helped me that while I am being indoctrinated really in that group, all the time doubting, all the time asking questions. And there were two um, experiences or uh, events that made me, um, the first one was basically, that made me decide, no, this is not for me. On the one hand, they are telling me your father is not, uh, is a Kafir unbeliever. 
because he was the one who was basically telling me this is not religion. This is uh, this is fundamentalism. He was telling me, and I was telling him no, no, no. And then when I told them that, they were basically your father is unbeliever, and then telling me about the stories of how during the time of the Prophet Muhammad that um, his companions had to disown their own uh, family members, and some of them actually killed them in the battlefield. And I still remember when I was listening to them, so what are you telling me here? You know, what, it's just like, I was just like thinking, okay, that was one moment, very decisive, I'll put it. And then the most important one was actually that came after when they started to, um, uh, because you have weekly meetings, it's like uh, you have a structure to the, our meeting. You know, and in one of these meetings, of course, all females, the leader, um, she was telling us about how a woman should behave, you know, um, how should uh, how she should obey her husband and gave the example of a situation where a woman um, wanted to visit her sick father. Her husband said no. She went anyway. And then came this uh, sentence that basically um uh, um, they say that uh, the prophet said that the, the angels uh, are cursing the woman for disobeying her husband. And I still remember at that moment, I was just like, come on, I come from a background where I've seen what it means for women to suffer. So I was just thinking now, who is the heartless person here? The husband who does not allow her to visit her father or the woman who wants to go and visit her bloody sick father you know i was so angry at that moment and i says and and i still remember what while i'm while i'm listening either either what you're preaching is a god without mercy or you can't be the right group that i, I mean i will not find salvation through them and i still remember i left that house knowing i would never go back I left that house because because it made me so it, it suddenly it opened my eyes and the two examples the, the two events uh, my father telling me that your father is unbeliever and what what you do with that and then the second about cursing a woman for wanting to visit her her sick father uh, they opened my eyes to it but at the same time it helped me afterwards when I started to research the issue. Uh, radicalization, when I started to research Islamism, um, to understand, because you had a structure. I didn't realize it at the time. But once I started to research, there's a structure, uh, a cell that is called family, um, indoctrination that takes process every week with certain specific chapters of Islamic history uh, that is meant to ingrain the idea that you are in a conflict with your or surrounding because the whole world is against your uh, religion. Um, and at the same time, it helped me um, in terms of uh, um, knowing the content, the type of uh, messages you get, you know, from them. So it really was very helpful in my studies afterwards. And I think my father was very, very relieved when I came back to him and I said, I don't want to go back to this group. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm taking off my my headscarf, and then uh, <laughs> he was so happy that he actually sent me for a vacation outside <laughs> <of> the country. <laughs> okay, two things on that. One, I've seen this with my aunt in India. 
you know, going back to India as a kid and then, you know, later when I was in my teens and 20s, and we're, we go, I go back over few years. So my dad's youngest brother's wife, she was, uh, you know, she was a lot of fun. Whenever I was coming, whenever I came to India, you know, she would drive us around. We would go, you know, <clears throat> we'd go, like, when they had kids as well, there was, like, little amusement parks and stuff that, you know, in, in Hyderabad. And she'd take us there. She wanted, you know, she was, she was, like, enjoying herself. She was, she would drive, you know, the only time I ever saw her cover her hair was when she was praying or the azad sounded, right? But now, I mean, since about, I guess, the early 2000s, she started going to one of these women chronic study groups. Oh. And now she is, she wears the, the, the niqab and everything when she leaves. She refuses to drive. Um, I mean, and she's gotten so fundamentalist, but also very cruel. Um, my brother passed away a few years ago, and my mom, uh, my sister-in-law lived in India, and my brother had been in Mexico on work, and you know he was there. You know he was he, had, he was living in India as well. So after when he passed away, we had the funeral in Canada, uh, and then my mom went back with my sister-in-law and my niece back to Hyderabad, and then my aunt invited my mom over for dinner, and it was within the forty days of mourning, right? And she berated my mom for leaving the house during the morning period to go out to dinner. And it was just, it's like, well, that, that, I mean, that's just pure cruelty. Like you, you're, you, you invited them and then to do this. And I mean, to, 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 you know, what you were talking about, like, you know, these Quranic groups, but then my dad as well. And this was one of my first memories from Canada. So I was about, I was between six and seven and we were in the apartment the buzzer rings, I answer it, they say they're from the mosque, they want to come up, you know, and you know, we were taught to respect the religion, I mean, I moved to Canada when I was six, so I, I still had a lot of that, so I let them in, let my parents know, oh, there's people from the mosque coming up, they come to the door, my dad invites them in, you know, offers them some tea, something to eat, they sit down, they start talking, and within about 15 minutes, my dad is physically throwing them out the door, and my brother and I were we're Sorry, just, what? we're shocked. I mean, my sister was three, so she, she didn't really know. But then my dad sat my brother and I down and said, you know, what these people did was wrong. He said, they came here to tell me how to be a good Muslim. And he said, no, no. He goes, it's up to your mother and I to teach you Islam and teach you the religion and teach you how to pray and teach you everything about the faith. But once you're an adult, that's between you and your God. It is not for anyone else to tell you how to be a good Muslim. And I think, I mean, obviously, I, I don't think I thought about it in those terms when I was that young, but it taught me how to question authority. It taught me that, you know, that there is no one person who can tell me what Islam is. It's up to me to decide. Like I said, at, at six or seven, I don't think I was thinking it quite like that. But reflecting back on it later on, I mean, maybe that's where I got it from, where, I, you know, maybe, you know. I, 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 you know, my dad passed away, so I can't really tell it to him, but, but maybe, I, you know, he, he kind of started to be on my path to being an atheist, but it's, but now it's just, like I said, you have my uncles who are afraid to speak out in the mosque, uh, one of my cousins, I, and I think that's when my, my aunt and uncle really took a, a strong look, and they changed mosques at that point, but he was going to these Sunday school classes, and then 
he was teetering on the edge of extremism. And when they saw that, they pulled him back a little bit. And they, they actually looked into the class then and moved into a different class. I mean, I, I think that's a lot of things that are... And it's not just Islam. I mean, even Christians do it. You know, oh, they're going to Sunday school. You know, they're learning their religion or whatever. Okay, their, their soul is going to be saved. And so they just leave it at that. They don't look into what's being taught to their kids. Something very important, and I showed also in the book the system behind that way of teaching, because there's a system behind it. And and if you look at the curriculums used by certain Islamist groups in mosques, you realize um, there should be supervision with all due respect. It's just like there's, it has nothing to do with the religious freedom here, because you are indoctrinating kids to hate, and while hating, to also um, consider violence legitimate. You know what I mean? And, and from that perspective, it's, I understand that fundamentalism exists in all religions and that also they teach children um, the, a discourse of hatred in all religion. When it's, well, I'm talking specifically about extremism in, 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 in any religion. But when we talk about this specific form uh, the consequences are related also to the violence that will be committed in the name of defending this religion. And, and that makes it uh, qualitatively different. Yeah, I mean, okay, I, I'm, I'm all for freedom of religion, uh, but if, you, if you're going to start forcing these laws of censorship and stuff and hate speech laws and stuff like that, I'll, I'll give you one example. Uh, there was a... a preacher, uh, there's a Catholic priest in Quebec in 2013, I believe. From the pulpit, he went on this tirade about how he will never perform a gay marriage in his church, and according to his religion, homosexuality is a sin, he will never accept it. And he's doing this from the pulpit, and I mean, theologically, he's not wrong, right? I mean, all the Abrahamic faiths shun homosexuality. He was sentenced to a six-month suspended sentence, and he is never allowed to speak in public again. Now, there are video after video of mosques from Canada, especially ones in Toronto. Uh, there's one in Montreal, not far from where I live. Like I said, there, there's a mosque. Like there, there's these videos from Toronto where the, the imams are saying kill the Jews, kill the gays, kill, you know, kill whoever. And there's a mosque not far from where I live. Like my mom goes there to shop for her halal meat and for Indian spices. And it's a block away from this mosque that is being under surveillance by the Canadian version of the CIA for, you know, CSIS, like the Canadian spy agency. They, they've been under investigation by them for years now. And I don't see any actions against these these imams i mean like I, I don't want to censor people their speech but if you're going to have these laws and you're going to apply them at least apply them equally don't show that you're raising someone up that okay they're above the law because they're a different color or you know it's oh it's that's just their culture like i'm sorry but that's you know telling me that's just their culture is like saying well they're not smart enough to get around that they're they're yeah, it's actually a racist way of um, 
not holding human beings to the same standards that are being used to everybody else. You know, it's, it's a racist, and I insist it's a racist way, because it's, it's as if they are telling us, oh, but these people, they're basically like that. But if you look at it, it's, we're talking about extremist groups, you know? And you cannot basically tell me that, that uh, um, hatred and um, uh, homophobia and all of this, this is um, something that can be allowed in the name uh, of uh, certain cultures or in the name of certain uh, religions. Uh, hold us all to the same standard. Um, and if you don't, then uh, then the social cohesion will be uh, damaged in a society on the long run because the frustration and the anger that basically um, builds up because uh, of the lack of action uh, towards certain kind of behavior by certain groups is bound to um, is bound to uh, come back and and hunt uh, the society. It's just, uh, the frustration, and you see it everywhere. Actually, that uh, you see a certain kind of anger that comes. I, I, I shouldn't keep you too much longer. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, like, yeah, this double standard. Um, and I've seen it, I've heard, I read about a couple of cases in Europe and we had it recently in Canada as well, where I think it was an Afghani guy in Canada and he was accused of raping a little kid and basically he was given a very light sentence because of, he didn't know that it was wrong to rape this little kid. Yeah, I, I'll dig up the story and I'll send you the link to it. Um, and I mean, I, there were a couple of cases like that in Germany. There was one in Germany about six or seven years ago where luckily, I mean, gratefully the judge was, uh, was taken off the bench, but a Moroccan woman went to file for divorce and she was beaten. And the judge said, well, you know, you know what you were getting into going into an Islamic marriage. It's like, women are basically have to be, uh, to brace themselves to be uh, hit by their husband if they're married according to uh, uh, an Islamic marriage. Which is a very, very, very oh, essentialist way of looking at people. It's really essentialist. Oh, but, but I mean, you—you are the judge right there was admitting, and the one in Canada here. Uh, there's been a couple of cases like that in Canada, not a lot, but I've read more out of Europe. You're basically saying we've got two systems of justice based on what you believe, and yes. you can't run a society like that. Yes, and th that's actually the core of the message of another book that I wrote, Women in Sharia Law, where I talked about the Sharia courts in the UK. And, and one, one, one sees that, yeah, yes, we are talking about two systems, um, um, a two, system, two standards and two types of citizenship. You know, one that basically um, uh, consider people, um, uh, that considers people equal before the law, and another that actually tells women you're not equal before of the law because of your religion. And it's okay to be discriminated against in the name of um, uh, religious freedom. And, and that, what I call this is like in the book, the, the type of system where, that allows Sharia councils to function in, in, in Britain is a legitimate uh, 
um, it's a it's a kind of a, a, a legitimization of um, legal discrimination against women. Yeah, uh, I, I t- you've been very generous with your time. Um, okay, so do you uh, where can people get in touch with you, and do you have anything coming up that you want to talk about, like just briefly? Oh well, basically, right now um, I've been very busy doing a lot of things, but I'm thinking. Well, there are two projects, but I'm still thinking about how to realize them. You know, one is research and one is literature. And um, other than that, uh, I'm just working. I'm just working. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, it was great talking to you. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And I will, I'll put all your socials in. So if anyone wants to get a hold of you, they can you know, click the links and hopefully... In the near future, they can read your new book in uh, in English. Well, thanks again. It's been great, and, it's been- and I really appreciate your invitation and being uh, with you on this podcast. I appreciate it very much. Well, thanks again.